When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're talking all about pheasant hunting with Tyler Webster. Welcome to the show for episode number 125. podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 to save 20 percent on your onyx hunt subscription today and by yukonuba premium performance dog food if you want to get the most out of your dog you need nutrition that holds nothing back to help unleash your dog's maximum potential check out the new yukonuba premium performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com and by cz usa shotguns Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight, Wing Shooter Elite, over and unders. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. Head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% on your next pair of boots. And by Doctor Callers. For over 30 years, Doctor has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Learn more at Doctor.com. And by Sage and Breaker. 
Sage and Breaker makes gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible in their products, in their pursuits, and in their vision. It's this dedication to crafting the highest quality products that give hunters and gun owners solutions that are reliable, convenient, and everlasting. And they're proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. And by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epignol Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field tested, and family approved for over 30 years. Learn more about Trinity Kennels by checking out Project Upland Podcast number 88 or by visiting trinitykennels.org. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled protection, one-piece rotomole design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Got a podcast upcoming with owner of Dakota 283, Greg Cronkite. Stay tuned for that. For now, head over to dakota283.com to pick up your next kennel. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Andy S. Andy sent us some feedback on the podcast. He also sent me a little recap of a trip that he took out west chasing birds some of his writing, shared some memories, some stories. I really appreciated it. And I love to hear from my listeners, especially when they show me pictures of their dogs, birds, and tell me stories about their hunts. Project Upland t-shirt headed Andy's way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. One quick announcement. Today being December 7th, starting tomorrow, our first ever one-hour feature film, Public Grouse, is going to be available digitally starting on December 8th. It's going to be on multiple platforms. I'm not going to list them all here. But if you are used to streaming digital content on one of the many services that exist, you should be able to find Public Grouse beginning tomorrow, December 8th. So be on the lookout for that. And if you were not able to attend one of the Public Grouse events way back when, before the current pandemic we're in, you can finally see the film in the comfort and safety of your own home starting tomorrow, December 8th. All right, today we are talking to Tyler Webster all about pheasants for the most part. I've been getting some emails and some questions for listeners wanting me to focus a little bit more on pheasant hunting, which I totally understand and appreciate. So given that it's hunting season, I figured I would go straight to the source, the guy that hunts birds over 100 days a year. He spends a ton of time in the field. He spends a ton of time driving around in the off season. The guy knows where to find birds. Simple as that. And he's been doing it for quite a while. So I checked in with my buddy Tyler Webster. We caught up on his season, recapped a little bit. Then we dove deep into pheasant hunting basics. And at the very end, we previewed what's upcoming for Tyler later this season. So with that said, we're going to jump right into it and welcome onto the Project Upland podcast from the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast, Tyler Webster. All right, we're rolling, buddy. Welcome Sweet. to the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Been a while since we've had you on. Yeah, I think it was uh, last year in September when you guys were out here. It was me and me and John O'Dell sitting oh, right here right. at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a solo episode with you a couple years ago, and then, mm-hmm. yep, last uh, last September we had you on with you, me, and Jonathan. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was a. Uh, uh, it was kind of it was kind of cool to have a guy from North Dakota, a guy from Arizona, and a guy from uh, from Minnesota all sitting at one table talking about you know different types of birds. Yeah, it was fun. I think that that's the beauty of bird hunting and the beauty of fall. I think 
for sure. It's been it's been quite a fall this year. <laughs> Man, dude, I I think I'm jealous of you cuz you're kind of you're like at the halftime of your season and I feel like to be honest, I kind of feel like I'm like trying to beat the buzzer here like late in the fourth quarter. I've got a few grouse hunts left before we get some serious snow and I don't have any major travel plans yet i'm keeping the keeping the door open as much as possible but i'm getting ready to slow down and i know you're you're just taking a breather barely uh yeah (laughs) so um my breather was actually deer season which uh i realize is a stupid sport that only people who uh want to be just driven mad want to do because i mean it was the first time in my life I've ever had a buck tag where I actually wanted to shoot a big one. And so I hunted fifth, uh, our season here in North Dakota for rifle is 15 and a half days. It starts at noon on Friday and ends at a half hour after sunset on Sunday, two weeks later. Yeah. And, uh, I hunted every day and I didn't like my, my dogs thought that I was, um, out of my mind. They were very upset with me. Uh, I'd be putting on my hunting clothes in the morning. They'd be getting all excited thinking we were going to go bird hunting. And then I was, putting on an orange vest and grabbing a rifle and they just kind of like look at me when I'm telling them to go into their kennel and they were not happy. <laughs> but I, I've never been so frustrated in my life. I actually had to take a couple of days off uh, to go and chase birds just as kind of a palate cleanser. Uh, yeah, and even then, yeah, even <laughs> then I ended up having uh, – yeah, what a mess. <laughs> it was just it – was, it was a mess. I would imagine deer hunting out there is – well, you tell me. Is it – like would you not upland hunt – when people are deer hunting or can you get away with upland hunting? Cause you can see and. Oh, you can certainly get away with upland hunting. Okay. In fact, it's one of my favorite weeks of the year to actually get out because okay. generally other than this year, like I'm staring out my window right now. I have no snow in my yard. It's uh, uh yesterday was 50 degrees. Uh, we've had, we've had a November to dream of here. Um, but generally that opening weekend of deer season is the first Friday in November. And it's still kind of that, it's getting towards that time of the year where it can start getting cold. We can yeah. start getting a lot of snow. Uh, but the first couple of days are generally when most of the action is happening, when there's people out everywhere. And then as the season goes on, it just kind of, you'll see less and less people. But you really only, see, I don't know what it is about. I, I have such a bad taste in my mouth for deer hunters in North Dakota. It's just ridiculous. But like it's like you'll see them in the morning driving around on the roads. And yeah. then you won't see anybody out walking. And then you'll see him about four o'clock in the afternoon. That's it. Like you very seldom see other people out pounding cover uh, or uh, posting up out on a hill or anything like that. So uh, once deer season kind of gets started, a lot of the stuff has been posted specifically for that. Yeah. And as uh, as hunting season goes on, access gets easier and easier to pieces okay. of a property that would generally be off limits. Yeah. Not to spend too much time talking about deer hunting, but I just sure. got done with a with a half hearted deer hunting attempt over here in Wisconsin, and as you know, it's kind of you take a break from. We're not like Michigan where they actually can't or they close grouse right. season during their rifle season, but it's similar in that you just don't bring your dogs out in the woods during that time. Sure. But now we're getting back, and I I kind of deer hunted this year mainly just to say that I did it. I, I get excited every year and I want to go, but I. I don't put a ton of time into scouting and I didn't have any success. But my question to you is like, if you go out hunting there, I mean, is it a challenge to put eyes on deer every day? Or, I mean, is that what you do? You drive around and you see you glass and you can see deer. Well, there's a, there's a couple of different, well, would you stop? <laughs> my, my, my short hair is poking my nose because he wants attention. Uh, 
but uh, there's a couple of different techniques. So here we kind of have like the mix of uh, of like the traditional Eastern uh, driven style deer hunts and the Western spot and stock style hunts. Yeah. So uh, we where I'm at here, we have enough terrain where you can very successfully do spot and stock hunting where you can get up on top of the hill and do some glassing and kind of work the terrain to get close, uh, which is my absolute favorite style of deer hunting. Yeah. Um, especially like our rifle season generally falls during the rut. So there's a lot of activity. Deer are up all day. They're on their feet. They're moving. They're chasing does. I guess I should premise the fact that I am absolutely not an expert deer hunter. In fact, I'm really bad at it. <laughs> Me but, uh, uh, I mean, like we can go out and we can see, you know, hundreds of deer a day, uh, yeah. because you can just see forever. Right. The other style of hunting, <clears throat> which is exciting in its own right, uh, that, Maybe looked down on by some people in the West, but I know that like Wisconsin, Michigan, they have a very rich history of doing driven deer shoots where, Mm -hmm. you know, you get a group of people in the woods and you got beaters and you got blockers. We do the same style of hunting out here a lot, but instead of woods, we're hunting cattail sloughs. So you get a couple guys on the outside edge with, with big scoped rifles and then a couple of guys going through the middle with open sight 30 thirties and what comes out goes down, you know, I mean, like it's really that kind of stuff. And it's, it's really exciting. It's really fun. Um, you know, you get a lot of deer that are getting up at, you know, basically under your feet, uh, which, which can be really exciting and you're, but the one downside is that you, it's, I mean, it's a downside and it's also a skill. But this, and this is why people in the West kind of look down on, on driven shooting a lot is because you are shooting running deer. Right. And so if you're, you know, if you can take those unethical shots where they're, you know, uh, kind of low percentage shots and you can end up either wounding a deer or ruining a lot of meat. Um, yeah. whereas, you know, if you get a, a nice hundred yard crossing shot on a deer that's coming out of a piece of cover, you should be able to put it in the 10 ring pretty much every time. So, but it's, it's fun. It is a good time. And it, it's, it's it's kind of a social. It's it's a lot more social uh, yep. way to to deer hunt compared to the spot and stalking. Where if you see somebody else, you start to kind of get pissed off. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, that guy's in my field. You know, right? You know, yeah. whereas with the other ones, it you know, you got eight guys and you're pounding giant pieces of cover, and there's you know, you're stopping the line and you're you're making sure that everything you're not taking any shot side to side. Everything's in front of you is yeah. basically is basically what you got to do. Everything amplified really just the fact that you've got rifles yeah 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 and i mean we did i I don't know if anybody's been to north dakota before but uh you can see a long ways and it's like not not flat flat but uh you know i shoot a seven millimeter remington mag and uh you know when you touch the trigger on that thing that bullet can go for you know mile and a half two miles so you really need to be very cautious about what's ahead of you that's crazy yeah well Definitely some parallels there. I've never done a driven deer shoot, and I know I hear the same kind of grumblings from some deer hunters about it because it's yeah. they do it in Wisconsin. I think it might be illegal in Minnesota. I should know that, but I've never participated in one. But, yeah, that there are some parallels there in pheasant hunting that we're going to talk about some of the strategies and some of the things that we do, and we're going to jump into that today. You mentioned having a November like really good November weather. I would agree. We've had some weird stuff over here. It's been an odd fall. And I think you, you've experienced some of this as well. Like we've had some crazy heat, like early in November. I'm guessing you had that. Mm -hmm. We've, we've, we've had on and off snow cover at some inopportune times, but at this point, now we have some areas with very little snow, like you mentioned and grouse, 
grouse hunting is still pretty good. So I'm looking to get out and get after it as much as I can before the heavy snow flies. But has it been kind of a weird weather year? It's been very odd. Uh, yeah. You know, our September was, we had almost ideal September hunting weather. Um, yep. we, you were out here in September. Yep. Um, we had a lot of days, you know, in the low seventies, lows in the forties, you know, you know, even in the mid seventies, when, uh, come September, it doesn't really start to get real warm where it's too warm to hunt, you know, until like one thirty, two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes and you take a couple hours off during the afternoon, then you go back yeah. out for an evening hunt. Um, September was really nice and the beginning of October was really nice. And then we had a very hard freeze, which is very unusual. I mean, it came in like the 15th or something like that of October where yep. we had lows down well into the single digits, um, you know, four or five degrees at night and highs in the twenties. And that lasted for about a week, week and a half and it froze up, um, pushed all, all of our puddle ducks out, um, really? all of our cranes out, which sucked because I was on cranes and just smashing <laughs> them every day, which was a riot. Uh, but it pushed all those birds out or at least down to the big lake and down to the river. So, I mean, farther away than what I really cared to hunt, which I'm not much of a duck hunter anyways. It's kind of something I do in the mornings to fill the freezer. Yeah. Um, but then we had a, a warm up where, you know, typical, typical, uh, October where, you know, we went from 20 degrees for a high during the day up into, you know, the fifties and, and even low sixties for a high. And it like to the point where it reopened up all the water. Yep. Um, you know, our cattail sloughs weren't frozen anymore. Uh, you know, and we had from then until now we have had ideal hunting weather, uh, you know, our opening weekend to deer season, uh, I think it was the 5th of November this year, that week before me and my buddy Donnie were out chasing pheasants and, uh, I think it was in the fifties and sixties. Um, yesterday was 50 degrees. Uh, today is supposed to be in the forties again. I mean, it's, yep. you know, we can, and this is kind of, it's definitely not a normal November by any stretch of the imagination, but we do get these occasionally where you know, we don't generally get nearly as much snow as you guys do anyways right um but to have no snow and to still have temperatures above freezing during the day is is would be the abnormal part yep and that's you know our conditions like i like i kind of highlighted they're they're pretty ideal once you get this late in the year you never know what's gonna i know last year i didn't grouse hunt after december like 18th or not not december november 18th right i didn't grouse hunt after that because we got heavy snow and it's not that i couldn't go but i just was kind of done with it at that point and there was so much snow so right now we're in we're in bonus time but the amount that we've had cold and then warm and then cold and then warm that's been kind of the unusual thing about it but yeah you never know in what fact, you get in the north uh, country you know you know for sure and this has really been kind of the 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 weather pattern that a, a upland hunter really dreams of. Other than the fact that, yeah. like what we're like most of what we're going to talk about today is pheasant hunting, and actually about four or five inches of fresh snow and a little bit colder weather would be beneficial to right. pheasant hunting because uh, they're still. I mean, we've been we've been doing pretty well, and you know we've been seeing a lot of birds, but they're not nearly as grouped up as they normally are this time of the year. I mean, normally this time of the year you're seeing hundreds of birds in a yeah. you know in, in in very prime cover and i mean we were out you know all week and you know we're still seeing plenty of birds but it's not like not like what's there yeah so before we dive headlong into pheasants i want to get your there there were some high expectations moving into this season i know 
sharptail counts, hun counts, a lot of the bird counts were elevated in North Dakota where you're at. They were kind of like that across the country for mm-hmm. a lot of folks. Like we had, I think we just had good spring and summer conditions. But now here we are, December 1st today. As you look back through September, October, you know, what did you see for bird numbers? Were you happy with them? Were they kind of about what you expected? What did you see? Well, let's take it species by species, yeah. uh, if you don't mind. So, um, Starting with Huns, I, it's been the best year I've seen for Huns in my adult life. Um, you know, a person who actually gets out, gets after it, has some idea. And I, I get, I get a question on my podcast all the time, you know, what are you looking for when it comes to Huns? And, and it's, it's really kind of hard to explain. Um, you know, it, like you can talk about hunting ridge rows and tree rows and, and weed patches inside of agriculture fields all you want, but until you, actually get out there and start putting on some miles and start getting some confidence in, in walking what appears like there would be no birds anywhere near there, uh, and finding some birds you just really don't, don't understand. Yeah. Um, but I've never, uh, we had a couple days, uh, this year where we had 14 cubby days, uh, which is unreal. Uh, I've never, you know, and the nice, the nice thing and the, and the crappy thing about North Dakota I'm going to say it's, it's, it's great in years like this, uh, or it, it's really hard in years like this, but it's a really good thing in most years is that our, our partridge limit has been three birds per person per day since the mid nineties. Um, it used to be five birds per day, um, which we certainly could have sustained this year, but you know, with, with the low numbers for decades now, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that they, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you, you know, with five bird limit, you could, you know, you get two guys and they really pound out a cubby bad. I mean, you can kill an entire cubby. So, yeah. you know, three birds, I think is pretty reasonable, but on, on years like this, where, uh, when you're looking for other birds, you're actually just constantly bumping into huns when you're already limited out. It's like, God damn, you know, I, I really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you got perfect dog work and then a big cubby explodes at your feet and you're like, well, you know, that would have been awesome three hours ago before yeah. I, when I was still shooting these things, but it's, uh, I mean, I got three cubbies in my yard. I was looking at a cubby out, out my window earlier this morning. So everything's like the tables. I've been saying it for a couple of years now. The tables kind of been set for a year like this for a long time. And if, if, you know, if, as long as we don't, winter, winters don't really affect tons very much. It's right, definitely hardy, mm-hmm, they, but they do tend to thrive in drier years. Okay. Uh, so like if, if we have a, you know, an average to mildly dry June, um, that will bode very well for them. And I mean, we could see, you know, huge numbers next year, uh, cause it just, it just becomes exponential at some point. So it, it definitely lived up to my expectations as far as this year's concerned. And I'm very excited going into the future. Yeah. As far as sharp tails go, it's, it's certainly the best year that I can, that I've, I've had for sharp tails as far as seeing numbers since like 2015. Okay. In 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, and even 15, you would see, you know, it wasn't hard to go get a limit of sharp tails. And then yep. we had, we had a stretch there where, you know, it wasn't, wasn't hard, hard, but you had, uh, it actually made you become a little bit of a better hunter because before you could just kind of stumble into them and, and, you know, there they were and you'd, you'd shoot some birds and you were, you, you were fine. But, um, 16, 17, 18, 19, it really forced me to learn a lot more about the bird and then I could actually still go out and be very successful at doing it. Once I figured out, you know, what I was looking for, the different patterns, uh, different types of food that they were looking for. And, um, it was all for my benefit for sure. But now this year we kind of started seeing it again where, um, 
you're kind of starting to see some of that bleed over out of prime habitat. Yeah. So yep. we shot some last week um, off point from my little dog, CJ. They came out of the edge of a cattail slough. Don't know what the hell they were doing there. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. There was no prairie within 20 miles of there, but there was there there were 30 birds, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you know, it's starting to come back to that point where, you know, again, if we, if everything works well, you know, we're, we're really set up for success in the future. Yeah. That's a similar conversation that rough grouse hunters have. And I guess it would just apply to all game birds. Really. If you have mm-hmm. a surplus of game birds, you start seeing them in, in the quote unquote marginal cover areas where right. you wouldn't, wouldn't expect to see them. I know I was just hunting down with a mutual friend of ours, Greg Cronkite in South Dakota. And he was commenting about how he didn't recall seeing as many sharp tails as he had prior to this year this he felt this year was a really good year for sharp tails and i saw that while i was hunting there we were able to and i didn't know any different that was my first time there but greg pointed us in some directions and kind of said this is where i've seen them and we were able to pretty well find sharp tails when we wanted to so that was that was fun well uh later on in the podcast uh we'll talk about uh the the little adventure that i got coming up uh but i do have some anecdotal uh uh stories from a buddy of mine who's here right now about uh about south dakota uh and prairie birds so yeah we'll, we'll get into that in a bit quickly because i know the sharp tail counts they were up to like the sharp tail surveys what are those counts are they brood surveys are they roadside counts do you know how they do that well, they, they do two different style of counts um, with both uh, pheasants and sharptail grouse. So the, the sharptails, they do what are called lek counts in the spring uh, where, where they go to the dancing grounds and then they, they record, you know, these are historic. I got a lek a half mile north of my house up here that I go up and, and watch birds and listen to them during the spring. But they're historic spots where these birds just go like they've, they've been going there for millennia. Who, yep. who the hell knows how long? Um, and so they'll, they'll set up observation booths and from year to year for like the last 50, 60 years, whatever, they have a, a data count. So there's this many males, there's this many females per lek. So they do that in the spring, which, you know, that kind of just, um, that data like set goes breeding to adults carry like, over yep. from the year before. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, there was, you know, uh, if there's good weather, you know, whatever. Uh, so it kind of, they have, they have this number. The other one that they they have is just um, it's a roadside survey, but they don't do a uh, a roadside survey just for any one species. They it's do observational. Uh, yes, yeah. so it, it's uh, mail carriers, it's game and fish personnel, it's whatever, and uh, you know it, wherever they see you know they see a, a, a hen pheasant run across a road or a partridge or whatever or a sharp tail. They'll get out and they'll try to make a, an effort to, to flush the young birds during August when they when they are able to fly and try to get somewhat of a count. And then they'll break that down to birds per mile. Like this year, uh, I think sharptails were up 50% or some, you know, number, which sounds yeah. like a lot. But, you know, like I talked to a game and fish guy on my podcast about uh, rough grouse a couple years ago here in North Dakota. And he's like... Yeah, uh, numbers are up 68%, but um, that would mean that, you know, maybe they observed 12 instead of 8, you know, right, or, or, right. You know or whatever, you know, it, it, so it's, it all comes down to that birds per mile number, um, which really kind of uh, starts to make a lot more sense when you're talking about pheasants, because that's yeah. what most people come to North Dakota for. Yeah, yeah, if you fall 50% from some earlier peak, you've got to get right. 100% increase to get back to that peak, so it's it's all relative when you're talking percentages. Right. Does my favorite North Dakota mail carrier participate in those surveys? Uh, I would be 
a very bad person to participate in those surveys because I would say that there isn't a bird within five townships of here. Uh, so, no, I do not. Uh, I do not. <laughs> You'd be sending up smoke signals. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, there, I don't know what's going on. There hasn't been a yeah. bird in Montreal County, North Dakota in seven years. <laughs> well, let's use the continuation of this conversation and have you talk about your pheasant season so far, and then we'll dive yeah. full on into pheasants. So pheasant season has been really good. Uh, we had, uh, I always kind of consider October to be kind of like the tourist month, uh, where, you know, everybody wants to come up in October, sure. um, you know, which is all well and good, but in all reality, October is not my best pheasant hunting of the year by any stretch of the imagination. But with that said, um, we had that early cold snap and, uh, a little bit of early snow that didn't last very long, lasted just a few days. Uh, which really kind of pushed those uh, pheasants into some of the some of the heavier cover where we could really get after them, and we did we did really well in October. But I mean, it's yeah, the the numbers are definitely on the rebound from our disasters here in seventeen when we had that terrible drought. Uh, okay. We're starting, you know, even just here, which is not you know anybody who comes to North Dakota does not come to Stanley where I'm where I'm at. It's not uh, known to be you know, a, a traditional hotspot for pheasants. Sure. Um, you know, there are some birds around and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing birds every day. I'm seeing birds in places that I haven't in, in four or five years, which is really good. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was definitely, it's my best, my best pheasant season out of the last four years. And, um, you know, it's really, we'd only would be coming into what I would consider to be the best time of the year for pheasants, which sure. is post deer season. So um, there's a couple of big refuges here in North Dakota, and uh, they're they have a kind of like it's a delayed opener for for a big chunk of the refuge that is absolutely loaded with pheasants, and it doesn't open up until after deer season closes. So that would have just opened up in the last week and a half. Um, I I've heard that people are going down there and limits are coming very easy. Hmm. Um, with that said, the cover down there is uh, <laughs> is nasty, nasty. Like it's miles and miles and miles of cattail sloughs. Yeah. Um, but uh, apparently there's a lot of birds down there this year. So generally speaking, my best time for pheasant hunting, what I consider to be my prime season, would be the day the deer season closes until the end of the season. Okay. Now, some years, uh, the end of the season may come early just because you can't get out. Um, you know, we have yep. that same problem that you guys have over in Minnesota where there are those years where you really just, like, you can't drive down the roads, you can't walk in the fields. Yeah. Um, you know, the dogs are, they really have a, a lot higher risk of, of breaking a, a, or, you know, ACL tear or something like that if they're running through half crusted sure. over snow. So, um, but, you know, most years, generally speaking, December is a really good month for pheasant hunting. Yeah. So that kind of lends itself to what you've, you've kind of transitioned to doing in recent years and you're, you're taken off, which we will, we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But at this point, you've, You've got plenty of pheasant hunting. How long does the season go? End of the year? January third, I think. Okay. It, it, it's always the first Sunday in January. So whatever the date is, I think it's it can be as late as the sixth, I think, or the seventh. Okay. But yeah, it's it's first week in January. Okay. All right. So we want to cover some basics about pheasant hunting, and one of the reasons being that I had been getting a bunch of requests from folks to to have some more pheasant focused conversation, which Mm -hmm. I understand because I have a tendency to talk about rough grouse a lot. That's what I, (laughs) that's what I know. And that's what I do a lot. And I'm just coming off my first legitimate real pheasant hunt, hunting with Greg Cronkite in South Dakota, had a blast down there. And while I still know 
nothing about pheasants. I have at least seen it take place. I've seen the process, and I've I've seen hunter success, which is cool, and I've sure. experienced it. Let's start at the beginning of the season. This is something I've always wondered, like how you approach. You know, you start your season on sharp tails, and you're hunting huns, and huns picks up in October, and then all of a sudden, pheasant season opens. So, is there is there like a black and white? transition that you make when pheasant season opens to say okay we've been hunting here now we're going to hunt there or is it more of a gradual transition because you're kind of tapering off sharp tails and hunts and sliding into pheasants like how do you approach it when all of a sudden pheasant season opens so uh, that's a that's a good question um the way that i look at my season is i break it down into into a couple of parts so september is is my sharp tail season um, they're much more approachable. They work well for the dogs. And as yep. you get later and later into September, they start getting a little bit more flighty. Now, with that said, I, you know, I mean, like I said, I was shooting pointed sharp tails last week, but, yep. um, a really good way to think of it is if you look at the opening day of season, which was always the second Saturday in September to October 15th, you can hunt sharp tails pretty effectively in that range. Yep. After the 15th of October, uh, you know, obviously weather's dependent because they, uh, anybody, we've talked all about sharp tails on several podcasts yeah. and, and everything else. But as the weather gets colder, they start grouping up. They start getting a lot more alert. They, you know, a hundred pairs of eyes compared to eight are a lot, a lot harder to get close to. Yeah. So once October gets here, I really could honestly care less if I hunt any huns before the first of October. Um, after the first of October, even though they're legal game in September and we'll kind of treat them, you know, a little bit more as bycatch or an opportunistic bird, come October, I really start targeting them. And part of the reason is because they share a lot of common habitat with pheasants. Got it. So I think of sharp tail season, huns and pheasants. Like yep. those are like, it's one or it, it, it's, they're different, separate, but equal. So, um, Huns and pheasants are much more drawn to agriculture than sharptails are. Yep. So as the season goes, I go from hunting big blocks of prairie ground to much more isolated pockets of cover inside of egg fields. Um, most years, uh, it's you know, like my, my favorite cover to hunt is going to be wheat stubble. I like wheat stubble a lot. Canola okay. stubble is also very good. Um, as the season goes later and later, if you can find some sunflower stubble or corn stubble, if you really want to punish yourself and your dogs, uh, yeah. because the, like the, it, it's nasty to walk through. It's hitting you in the shins. Um, you know, I'm always concerned about a dog running over a, a corn stalk and getting, getting poked in the chest or something yeah. like that. Like it, yep. it's a real concern. I don't really like to hunt those fields if I can help it. Um, but you can, you can, uh, kind of, you, you can really pile them up in those covers as well. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some sunflower, some cut sunflower fields when I was in South Dakota and that's, uh, we were driving through them and it didn't sound like it was easy. On <laughs> they're the no joke. Yeah. I mean, they're, uh, I mean like they're, you know, big around as a ping pong ball, right. uh, you know, yeah. and they're like, they're very stiff. So, yeah. uh, you know, I was, we were in a cut on the edge of a cut stubble, uh, sunflower field on Sunday. And I heard my dogs, like they were kind of tracking, working out into the sunflowers a little bit. And then all of a sudden I heard pop. And I was like, oh God, like I knew exactly what it was immediately. One of the, like, it was my short hair. He ended up kind of center punching himself and you heard him yelp a little bit and come running back. He was fine, but it's like, yeah, let's, let's just get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was kind of my, that would have been my assumption of 
pheasants and huns with the overlap being there as you kind of described because in my experience hunting out there hunting sharptails we're hunting the grass and we don't see a lot of pheasants i mean it's rare to see a pheasant and i knew enough on the surface to know that we probably weren't going to but Mm -hmm. then you start getting closer to ag and now i've kind of i've seen it a little bit more the overlap exists much more with pheasants and huns. so when you start when you transition to your hunting huns in october Mm-hmm. Then you're starting to get a really good read on the pheasants, I'm guessing. Right. Uh, so as like all throughout the summer and the fall when I'm out running dogs yeah. and even sharp tail hunting, you'll just happen to see pheasants sure. occasionally. So I, I always got my, my, my phone with and I'm marking stuff on Onyx. Like I got, uh, I mean, it, I have so many pins on, yeah. <laughs> on my Onyx. It, it just, it, it looks like it's completely covered. Yeah. And so the only place I drop pins are places that I see birds. So by the time that my, uh, by the time my season starts, um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's like, a solid it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it goes for you know eighty miles. But uh, by the time my season starts, I have a like kind of a general game plan of enough spots to basically get me all the way through the month of October, just hunting spots that I know have birds in them. Um, and so, I mean, like I said, I, I kind of consider October the tourist month. So I got all my friends up here. I got uh, like the B three jamboree. I got all kinds of stuff up here going on. And so I'm either sharing pins or I'm, you know, helping people try to, I'm just giving them good spots. And then as the season goes on, I'm acquiring more and more spots. So I'm, I'm always kind of, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for that next great spot, but yeah, it's, uh, um, you just kind of end up seeing them and, you know, just kind of got to remember where they are. Yeah. So with respect to approach of let's say opening day pheasants and i'll use this mm-hmm. analogy so i can kind of help myself understand it when sure. rough grouse season opens here the woods are full foliage it's a crazy place to be it's not the most fun hunting and i i kind of tailor my my hunting early season i will usually what i'll do is try to hunt i'll try to hunt some trails and i'll hunt more mature timber mm-hmm. i'm not going to get into the super thick aspen i'm not going to get into that stuff just because I'm trying to save myself the punishment. And I'm hoping that broods of birds are going to be kind of all over the place, which has worked for me in the past. Does that kind of a storyline play out in the pheasant? I mean, it's totally different because you don't have the woods, but do you start the season hunting certain kinds of cover and then transition as crops come off or what does that look like? Uh, generally by the time, uh, pheasant season opens, all the crops are off for the vast majority. Um, other than, you know, maybe some late sunflowers, late corn, uh, late soybeans, but most of it's going to be down yep. in, in most years. In October, it's, act, I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying uh, when it comes to rough grouse, but it's a little bit different. I think it's harder in October just because the birds here are more scattered. Okay. Um, so, like, you can look at a, a whole mile-by-mile mile section of land and – Anything within that mile by mile when it's 60 degrees and there's all kinds of wheat and grain and bugs and everything else on the ground, anything within that mile can be suitable habitat for pheasants. So as the year goes on and it starts getting colder, their core habitat starts to shrink, which makes it a lot easier to target them. Uh, So in October, you know, we're hunting... uh, hunting pheasants in pretty much anywhere that I've ever hunted pheasants, but specifically in North Dakota means, uh, cattail sluice, which are miserable. Um, 
in October, they're uh, very wet. <laughs> they're yeah. uh, green. They're yeah. They're they're just a nightmare to get through. We will do a little bit of that in October, uh, but more so, I'm going to be trying to hunt weed patches, creek bottom, stuff like that, where it's not quite as thick because they don't need that thermal cover just yet. They yeah. don't need to be in there where they're protected from the cold and the wind. Uh, so, I mean, you'll still find birds in cattail sloughs, and if and by all means, go go after them. Uh, but I, I try not to until it starts to freeze up because you can just get wet and cold and miserable. And, and then you go through a lot of punishment for not a lot of reward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hunting a lot more, you know, strips of CRP or, you know, just, uh, thick cover, uh, yeah. in, you know, close to food is basically my, my October game plan. Um, as the season goes on, like I mentioned, uh, as it gets colder and we get more snow, those birds start, their territory starts to kind of constrict a lot more. Um, yep. th- there's no crops left. Um, a lot of the weed patches have been tilled under by farmers in preparation for winter. Uh, so as the year goes on, specifically November, December, uh, I'm hunting cattail sloughs in egg fields exclusively. That's almost all that I hunt. And once we get a little bit of snow, it becomes a lot easier because as you walk into the cattail slough and you're seeing hundreds of pheasant tracks, obviously that's a good place to hunt. Uh, if you walk into a cattail slough yeah. and you're getting, getting the, the crap beat out of you and you're not seeing any tracks, you know, get out of there, go someplace else, you know, so you can really kind of, you can use your time and, and your energy a lot more effectively as the season goes on, which is why I like hunting late season pheasants compared to early season pheasants. Okay. Um, and it's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot. In the last couple of weeks, I've been hunting with some some friends of mine that are very accomplished prairie bird hunters like Wes Larrabee or uh, my buddy Logan, who's here from Georgia, who hunts basically everything. But uh, I didn't really – I've done it for so long, and I've just kind of been brought up in pheasant hunting that uh, I kind of forgot why we do cer- certain things a certain sure. way. Yeah, so, you, just, you just do it every day. Right. Yeah. So, like, I, w- I was talking to Wes uh, – last week or two weeks ago when he was up here, however the hell long it's been since he's been gone. Uh, Did he but, ever leave? <laughs> I mean, basically not. I think he got mail here for a while. Uh, but uh, pheasant hunting is the only the only kind of bird hunting that I think of other than maybe desert quail in Arizona, like gambles and scalies, yeah. that I actually think of almost like a war. Um, I think of, like, I mean, they are the enemy and we are the good guys. And, like, so, like, you can have a pen and paper or a full-on John Madden teleprompter with an illustrating pen, whatever you need. But you are putting together a game plan trying to push birds towards either something that's going to hold them, where you can approach them, towards a blocker, trying to get them to stop running you know, whatever. And you can have walkers in a line and you can have a couple of, of flankers that are out ahead of the line. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot of strategy involved in pheasant hunting. Um, and it's, God, th- th- they just don't behave l- l- like birds should behave. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I know that's why, why Ron loves them so much is because they are, you know, they're loud, they're big, they're colorful. They're, you know, they're, uh, they don't play by any rules. They will run, uh, you know, yeah. they're, there uh sometimes i mean i don't know how many times i've been standing in a cattail slough standing still for 10 minutes and a bird will go out behind me yeah i mean like they'll just sometimes they'll run for days and sometimes you can't get them to, to fly 
Yeah. Um, but it makes them, it makes them a really fun bird to chase. We should see if we could get like a Microsoft surface tablet sponsorship, you know, for the podcast, you could be drawn right? up while you're hunts. <laughs> Man, it's a, uh, you know, we had a, a, just a quick story. Uh, when Wes was up here, we went down to a place that, uh, I actually hunted, uh, took Travis Frank to on the flush. Um, it was the episode that aired this year, uh, the, the Mallard Island hunt, but we went down to Hazen and we had, I think there was five of us. We had four walkers and one guy that was going to be blocking for us. And I'm not a hundred percent sure if I've ever been more mad in my entire life as I was when we got halfway through the walk and our blocker wasn't where he was supposed to be. <laughs> like I was yelling, I was trying to call him on the phone. We had 150 birds like pinned down to this one little corner of this slough and our blocker's supposed to be right there holding those birds in for us because if those bird, if we have a blocker where he was supposed to be set up at, those birds fly out and they go to the right into this big, long, very thick tree row. It happens every time we've been doing the same hunt for like 10 years. Yeah. And so like you go through this punishment of, of walking 600 yards of a very wide cattail slough very slowly with pointing dogs, hoping that there's no raccoons or porcupines in there. Yeah. Uh, just hoping that you can drive these hundreds of birds that are in this slough into this big thick tree row where you can go and actually shoot them effectively. Yeah. Uh, with nice dog work, which is something that I, I really like. When the blocker's not there, they fly directly across the road to a piece of posted land over there, and then they sit over there in the ditch and laugh at you. And you don't get any birds out of the tree row where you're just working to get them all into. Yeah, so the I sacrifice was like, has uh, no like reward. I had a I had a GoPro video where I actually shot a pheasant. I had Rusty on point in front of me, his beepers going off, and I shoot this rooster. And in the GoPro video, I was I was trying to call. I forgot to turn it off because I was pissed. And I was trying to call Dale on the phone, and I was like, if you don't get to the end of this cattail slew, I'm going to punch you in the nose when I get back to the truck. Like, I'm mad. And he's like, I'm at the No, you are not, sir. And so, like, when we got back, the next walk that we made, I had this yellow uh, legal pad right here and a, and a pen, and I drew him exact directions of exactly where I wanted him to go. Did he and not have like, Onyx? Couldn't you just drop him a pin? I, he does now. I made him get it. I made him download it at that moment. I was Good. like, "You need Onyx, so I can so I can show you exactly where you're supposed to be standing because we are not doing this again." Like, it's pheasant hunting is is really fun. It's incredibly maddening, and when uh, when it works out right, I mean, it can be it can be really spectacular. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to touch on before we left it was you're talking about the birds concentrating and getting in groups mm -hmm. and it sounds like there's definitely a difference there like as it relates to sharptails when they group up they get harder to hunt but with pheasants you know and i saw a little bit of this working some of the objectives in hunting where you get birds going up flying down a tree row and once they go over the other birds then a bunch of them start jumping mm -hmm. but what do you find as far as you know they'll tolerate some of that you can still get good hunting on birds that are grouped up yeah it's uh it's definitely it's definitely a mixed bag. Okay. So the way that I look at it is I kind of take the more optimistic point of view where is if there's like it's not I know that using these numbers it sounds like I'm I'm full of crap but I I swear to god it actually happens. Uh the way I look at it is if there's hundreds of birds in this spot when it comes to pheasants they're going to be in this very thick cover. Yeah. If 80% of them go out there's still 
40 birds there. Some right? of them are going to hold. Right. Yeah. And so I, and like, I get the, I get the question all the time about beeper callers. You're like, do you think beeper callers scare birds? Do you think slamming car door? It, sure. It a hundred percent will scare some of them, Yeah. but no matter what, just like individuals, there's always going to be that group. That's just going to try to hide. They're not going to try to fly. And those are the ones that I'm going to focus on. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you're, if you know, we have five people, we can shoot 15 birds. We don't really need hundreds. We need, 15 birds, right? Yeah. And you don't so, really want a hundred <laughs> birds sitting there. You know, you want a few of them scattered. Right. And so, uh, you know, and just before we get off this subject a little bit, it's very different hunting with my setters and my short hair, yep. um, compared to laps. Uh, so it, it's, you can hunt the, there's a lot of people who think I'm completely insane to turn pointing dogs loose in the cattail slew. And trust me, I get, I understand why. <laughs> But, um, that's what I got. And, uh, so, I mean that, you know, my dogs have learned to do it and they're very good at it. In fact, uh, Bo has a new nickname. I've called him Bodozer because, uh, that dog goes (laughs) from cattail slew like a freaking machine. Uh, but, um, so just, uh, talking a little bit more about strategy, just, just for a second. If you have, if you have labs or any flushing dog, labs, cockers, springers, there's a couple things that you can do that are going to, uh, that are going to be way more effective for you than it would be for me with pointing dogs. One of them are going to be tree rows, like very thick, nasty tree rows. Um, my dogs have a tendency, if I'm going to walk a half mile long tree row, and my dogs understand that that's what we're working, Rusty will just run to the end sure. and then hunt back or, you know, whatever. He'll blow through the whole thing, which, you know, if there's, if there's, you know, birds in there that'll hold, it works fine. Um, if there's not, it just, you know, you, you can basically just see the birds fly away and then hopefully they go into some place where you can actually get them to hold. Right. Other times they will actually hold and he'll, you know, he'll hold point in those tree rows for a while, but I just personally hate hunting tree rows. It's not yeah. what my dogs are good at. It's not what I like to do. Now, with that said, that's really perfect flushing dog cover. Um, as well as, you know, some of these, anytime that I get into a cattail slew, one of the things that I'm looking at is, is it too big? Am I not going to be able to cover this effectively? Um, do we have enough people to cover this effectively? It's it, you need to look at that kind of. At, you need to be very objective when it comes to that. You need to look at it and be like, man, we're just never going to get them out of here, or it's too thick, or you know whatever. Um, it's the same thing with labs, but it actually, if I was going to be just a straight up pheasant hunter, I would have a flushing dog. I wouldn't have pointing dogs because yeah. I mean, it, like that is the the correct tool for the job. I mean. What I do is basically like trying to use a, a, a sledgehammer to pound a screw into the wall. You know, like it, it, it works, <laughs> yeah. but is it, is it effective? I mean, yeah. Okay. I mean, like it works well enough, but it's not, it's not exactly what we should be doing. You know, that's kind of why I like hunting other birds <laughs> so much. And that's why I think of pheasant hunting as a, as a war. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to just kill them to eat them basically. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it really is, uh, yeah, it, like, I talk so much crap about pheasants. Like it, it, it's a bird that I, I, everybody thinks that I just, I, I straight up hate. And there, in all honesty, there's very little, th- very few things I'd rather be doing in November than chasing pheasants. Yeah. They, they make for some of the most memorable, some of the most frustrating. If you knock a bird down and you actually get it out of one of those cattail slews, I mean, you've done something because right. they, you need to double tap. You know, we, we learned it in zombie land. You know, you need to, if, if there's any question, shoot that thing again, because if, if, if that bird hits the ground running, you're not going to get it. Yeah. That was probably my favorite part about just getting to, you know, experience the sights and the sounds of it, you know, especially after a couple of months of 
chasing rough grouse and catching glimpses of them through the tree. Sure. It was a nice contrast to come out. And again, a lot of things I appreciate about sharp tail hunting, seeing a, seeing a bird against a blue sky background, getting a full visual. Like I sure. love that stuff, but to see a big rooster get up and you know, the sounds that they make and well, and, and occasionally hundreds. Yeah. I mean like you're yeah. never going to see numbers like you will in a pheasant field. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've hunted sharp tails and huns for a long time and I've never walked a single piece of cover and kicked 500 huns out of, a, you know, I just haven't, it doesn't exist. It does happen in pheasant hunting. And so, I mean, like the, the spectacles that you will see, yeah. um, are, are incredible. And there are those days every single season where it generally happens after you get a fresh snow, especially early in the year. If you can get a nice fresh snow that first, like in October in the first couple of weeks of season, you got, you'll get fantastic dog work. Those birds will actually bury up underneath the snow. They'll yeah. snow roost just like a, just like a rough grouse will. I've had it happen probably a dozen times in my life where I've kicked into a snowbank trying to see if there's something in there or in a cattail slew or whatever. And doggles just stand there forever. And you're thinking that the dog's completely lost his right. mind. And all of a sudden you kick in the, in the ground and you see a tail feather sticking out of the snow and you're like, no way. And yeah. then all of a sudden this great big giant bird erupts and there's snow going everywhere and you could just as well eject all three shells out of your gun. Yeah. You're never going to hit that bird anyways. <laughs> But, I mean, you will see some sights and sounds that you just won't see in any other kind of hunting. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's an interesting, you know, the other element to pheasant hunting is we're only shooting roosters, right? So there's mm-hmm. that, there's kind of an interesting, like, anticipation that gets built up, especially if you start popping a bunch of hens and you see that and you're kind of waiting for the rooster that can be very thrilling and some of the tight holding, I, I saw it a lot more with, with the hens, like some of those hens, mm-hmm. I mean, they hold until you're basically stepping on them. And when a pheasant gets up under your feet, it's, it's pretty, I have, I, I've stepped on them this year. In yeah. fact, I, I stepped on three straight hens in one walk earlier this year with, with Wes there. And I, every time I, I, t- I thought I was going to have a coronary, <laughs> um, but, uh, when, when you're talking about bumping hen and hen and hen and yeah. hen, one of the biggest mistakes that I see hunters make, and I tell people this when they come up here for the first time, if you're walking through a slough and you flush 20, 30 hens, right, and you don't see any roosters, you walked too fast. You need to slow down because, okay. like, we have this tendency where we're amped up. Our dogs are yep. amped up. There's birds going out everywhere. And we're just racing through this piece of cover. And then all of a sudden you get to the end you see birds going out the other end, Right. It happens all the time in pheasant hunting. And if you just slow down, you know, like just hold the line, uh, you know, just stand there for a second. Make them birds nervous. Make them either run or fly. Yeah. doesn't matter which. But you, there's nothing I hate more than seeing a great big old rooster go up behind me. Like, it, like it's like I just walked right by that bird. And, so, and sometimes, you know, when you get into a piece of cover like that, there's so much scent that the dog's – they just can't tell what's new, like what's there and what's not. So the dogs, you know, they may be tracking, 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 and like you got to rein them in a little bit. You got to, you know, get them to settle down, slow yeah. down, you know, because the bird they may be tracking may be that hen that, that goes out in front of you, right? But when it was tracking that bird, it just ran past twenty others, you know. And I had it happen opening weekend this year. Uh, actually, it wasn't opening weekend. It was during the jamboree. And, uh, I had a, a buddy of mine, uh, I've hunted with him several times, uh, named Ellis. He's from over in Pennsylvania. And we, uh, we like Rusty's walking on point, like tracking through the, like along the edge of this slough. And I, 
I've done it so many times. I should have known better, but I didn't. Like we got, we got all the way to the end and, and here goes this, this one rooster and he shoots it. And then when he shoots, there are like 20 more that pile out behind us yeah. because the dog was just tracking the one bird and there's nothing you can do about that. Yep. But we were just racing, you know, going, going with the dog and we just ran past everything else that we really should have got. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, seeing some of the objectives and the small, like we were hunting some Milo strips. You know, I, mm-hmm. I primarily hunted with Greg and his friend in their labs. And I think we did, we did quite a few hunts that were really set up for that mm-hmm. walking in a line, pushing a strip of Milo or pushing a tree row. But just seeing the amount of birds that could come out of that singular piece of linear cover, like imagine the tracks and the trails that they're leaving in there. And it just, it amazed me. And even with sharp tails too, like when you, when you get dog work to the point where you know the bird is moving Mm -hmm. and you're just like, you're thinking to yourself, how the hell could I not see these birds running? But obviously they're much more adept at running through the grass and you have no idea they're there. Huns are the big ones. Oh, I would me. imagine. Big, yeah, they're like, I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen a, a dog's track a covey of Huns that were clearly running ahead of us yeah. for 150, 200 yards. Yeah. Never seen them. And it's like, there's 20 birds. Right. Like, how can right. I, how can I see it? It's the same thing, you know, like you're talking about with pheasants. Like, you get into one of those sloughs and you look down at the ground and it's nothing but pheasant tracks. And you're like, Oh my God, like there's got to be a thousand birds in here. Yeah. And then like you start walking and you know, nothing, 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 nothing. And then all of a sudden just, yep. just this huge eruption birds everywhere. And it's like, how the hell could I see you? Like yeah. it's all snow. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, it's, yeah. God, I love bird hunting. It's, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> it's of fun. Too much yeah. fun. A lot of different flavors. That was the other thought I had. And it's interesting, you know, you're talking about the pointy dogs and when I was hunting, I was with um, Chet who hunts pheasants with pointy dogs and mm-hmm. you know in my I was kind of scratching my head just seeing how these birds run through say like a strip of Milo mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself how the heck would would a pointing dog ever get one to hold if they have such a tendency to run and I did get to run my six-month-old puppy a few times mm-hmm. who you know my expectations were basically nil with her but she got a couple of roosters pointed mm-hmm. and one yeah. in a strip of Milo one on a really weird fence row and a piece of grass that it didn't really feel like a, a place where a rooster should have been. And of course he flushed as I was trying to cross the fence. So I was pretty, <laughs> pretty peeved about that, but I saw it work and that was, and that was really cool, but I can, yeah. I can certainly see how certain covers set up for flushing dogs and, and I got to experience both and shoot birds both ways. So it was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. It, it, pheasant hunting really is kind of the great equalizer when it comes yeah. to flushing dogs, pointing dogs, because you can do it with either flushing dogs are probably, I mean, they're certainly going to have the edge when it comes to pheasant hunting, yeah. in my opinion. Well, especially having like a, a strong retrieve, you know, and speaking right. personally, like my pointing dogs do not have a super strong retrieve. Although yeah. my six month old puppy did retrieve a rooster. So I was nice. pretty happy about nice. that. <laughs> uh, Bowen, uh, my, my setter, uh, Rusty and, and my short hair, Bo, both have, they're both very good retrievers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from that. Now, CJ, on the other hand, she'll retrieve when there's other dogs in the field because she's a competitive little thing. Uh, and it's hilarious to see a 35 pound setter carrying a giant rooster pheasant back yeah. in your mouth. It just, it looks totally <laughs> in a, it like, it's like, how are you doing that? Right. But, uh, j- just like I was talking about with, uh, you need to be realistic about your expectations and uncover and what you can effectively hunt. There's also times where I'm going to put a certain dog down in a certain piece of cover because I know that they excel at 
one thing or the other, yeah. right? So I'm not going to put CJ down for pheasants in a big cattail sloop because she doesn't retrieve very well. Um, you know, she she hunts dead very well and yep. she'll find birds. But if I have a wounded bird in there, I'm not coming up with it with her tough, unless yeah. I just get lucky. You know, yeah. I mean, she might she might track it, she might pin it, whatever. But um, so I, I'm I'm very uh, I, I don't look at my dogs through rose color color glasses when it comes to pheasant yeah. hunting. Where you know, like if it's like a big piece of um, CRP with uh, with whatever, CJ's perfect dog for that because you know she she covers way more ground than sure. my other two. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, Hank Shaw. Every time I post a picture of of her on Instagram, he comments hashtag fur missile <laughs> because that's what she is. Yeah. I mean, she she's a, she's an insane little Tasmanian devil that yeah. uh, the only time she stops moving as if she's pooping or pointing uh but uh you know i'm if i'm hunting cattails it's going to be rusty or bow you know and again if i'm hunting uh a tree row or something like that even if i don't like doing it it's going to be one of it's going to be rusty because i need i need that dog that has the two gears i need the the speed up the slow down i need the you know the the tracking ability of yeah. bow you know so you really need to kind of you need to look at your dogs, however many dogs there are. If there's five of you guys going and you each have a dog, you don't need to hunt every dog on every walk. Right. Uh, in fact, it's going to be very detrimental to you to do that. Um, but you need to look at it and be like, okay, this cover's really thick. Um, that wire hair and that lab, um, they both have very strong retrieve. They both track very well. Let's put them in that piece of cover. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, if you kind of run what you brought, you know, right, if, if right. you're going out by yourself, you, you know, just, just kind of be realistic. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a piece of cover thinking, oh my God, if I shoot a bird in here, I'm never going to find it. You're not going to find it. Yeah. Don't go in there and shoot birds. Yeah. Yeah. You might look for a different piece of cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you did talk about the tactics a little bit. Let's, let's talk about those just a little bit more as far sure. as the posting and blocking. Cause that's something that, you know, I've never done that in upland hunting and it was very much a part of what we did in South Dakota. And, you know, I did a lot of posting because I, I actually, I did plenty of walking too, but I sure. enjoyed kind of seeing the hunt play out and seeing, mm-hmm. seeing the hunters come down the line and seeing how it worked. I don't recall, I didn't get a lot of shots as the poster and I don't know if that's typical. I mean, the hope is, you know, maybe one flies, flies past you or whatever, but I found it just interesting. Like one person, you know, one or two people standing there, like the pheasants are actually going to get to the end and see you and you can actually mm-hmm. force them. I mean, that's just interesting strategy. I don't understand how it works even, but there, there's definitely an art to being a blocker. Sure. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do. In fact, I, I very rarely block anymore because uh, I'm I'm kind of the guy with the dogs generally. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's actually break it down just a little bit more than that. Okay. So if you have three guys going, you may have a blocker in a tree row. Um, other than that, you're probably not going to because you just don't have enough people to do it. Sure. Right? You need to have the three guys walking in a line, moving birds, and just hoping that they don't all go out ahead of you. Yeah. But where pheasant hunting uh, excels over other types of upland hunting, you can actually do it very effectively with like 10 guys. Right? Right. right. You can find a big piece of cover. You can get seven guys walking and three blockers on the end, and you can effectively cover these big swaths of cover that otherwise are just too big for anything else. Yep. Um, so it becomes a lot more social than, say, sharp tail hunting would be, which is an aspect of it I really like. Now, with that said, if I get 10 guys in a field, I need, like, Xanax because I like I, I start getting stressed out. There's yeah. too many dogs. There's too many whistles. There's a lot guns, of guns everywhere. <laughs> and, like, and it's the only time where I'm yelling at people. Stop 
Pay attention to the damn line. Watch where you're at. Yeah. Nobody shoots at anything, any low birds. It's only you have to have gun light under your barrel. You know, like I will stop the line. I will walk over and scold somebody if I need to because it's it's a lot of chaos. Yeah. When you have ten guns and hundreds of birds going up and dogs everywhere, you know, it can get real dangerous real fast. Yeah. So like you need to like before you go. Like, you're standing around the pickup, and it's like, okay, no, this is redundant, but this is what we're going to do. These are the rules. Yep. We're not shooting any low birds. Um, you know, I took a couple. Uh, my buddy Adam, he's got a, a son, Jax, who's uh, 10, I think. Uh, and he just started hunting this year, and we we had a real a real stern safety meeting before we went out. I was, you know, and he did great. In fact, I find that kids are way better with their muzzle control than adults are generally because they're a lot more cognizant of it. Yeah, they're probably focusing on that one thing. Yeah. And we're a lot more, you know, we're like, oh, you stop that. Whereas, you yeah. know, a 65-year-old man who's been doing it forever, and it's a little bit harder to scold that guy, but yeah. it still needs to be done if it needs to be done. But um, as far as the blockers and and pushers go, and you're right. Uh, now, there are times where the blocker is going to get a ton of shooting. Uh, there are those days um, and those particular spots like that, that like that cattail so I was telling you about earlier. Like, that is a blocker spot. Um you know, Dale, the old guy who was blocking, he was, he's 60 something. Uh, and you know, I was like, you're going to get a ton of shooting down there. I mean, like he's a terrible shot and I love him to death because he is a terrible shot and he knows it and he allows us to make fun of him for it. I was like, bring a box of shells cause you may go through them yeah. <laughs> for your three birds. <laughs> uh, North Dakota doesn't have a party hunting rule. So we can't, we can't party hunt. You shoot your three birds at that. That's, that's your limit. South Dakota and other places do have a party hunting limit where if you got nine guys, you're shooting 27 birds and you're shooting birds. It doesn't matter if one guy shoots 27. Right. Right. Um, like it, like that's just, that's the way that the laws work because, uh, pheasant hunting is such a social activity, but here in North Dakota, you shoot your three and that's it. But now, uh, talking a little bit about, about techniques when it comes to blocking to start with, when I'm blocking, I'm, I'm going to be as absolutely quiet as I can be Yeah. until, uh, like I'm going to stand there. I'm going to try to like, if there's a hay bale or a telephone pole or whatever the hell it may be, whatever kind of structure I can get between me and the blockers. So that way the birds can't see me. Yep. Um, and I'm going to be as quiet as I can until the, until the, the pushers are within about 150 yards of me. Sure. Then I'm going to make myself big so that way they can see me. And hopefully, I'm, I'm actually going to even talk a little bit, and hopefully is what that'll do is those birds that are running to the end, if you make yourself known to those birds, then the theory is that they're going to stop. They're going to like, like they're gonna be like, oh, okay, we can't go any farther this way. There's another person right here. Let's just hide. Yep. And then they're going to get pinched. And then they're going to get pinched. And at that point, like, there's no point in a pheasant hunt that's more dangerous than when the blockers are really close to the pushers, or the, or the other way around. Yeah. So when... You start getting, as a pusher now, as you start getting towards the end of a walk, that's when you really want to start slowing down more. Because, again, in theory, is what's going to happen is those birds that you were pushing forward now have either seen or felt the presence of the block or whatever. And they're going to start either going out the sides or going backwards. Um, pheasant's first defense is run. Like that, that is their number one, like they don't fly if they don't have to, because their main predator is hawks and owls. And so when they fly, bad things happen. Either they get shot by a guy or, uh, they get killed by a hawk. So they are going to generally run as much as they possibly can. So as you're within a hundred yards of the end, 
where most people are starting to speed up because there's birds popping, right? Don't do that. Slow Just down. slow down a little bit. Just kind of take it back about 10% and kind of start working. And when somebody shoots a bird and you're on the line as a, as a pusher, stop the line, get that bird. Once it's in the bag, continue the line, right? Yep. So that's the general, uh, the general rules there as far as, um, pushing and blocking just d- different techniques. There's one other, uh, technique there that I don't know if you guys use in South Dakota, but it can be very effective. Um, it's something that needs to, there's even more stringent rules when it comes to it, in, in my opinion. But so you take the same line with the same blockers, but you add flankers. Yeah. So if you have a, especially late season where those birds are going out, um, you know, 50, 180 yards ahead, take a line, say it's five guys and say there's 10 people. You take a line of five people and you put two guys 40 yards ahead of them on the sides. Yep. And it's going it, to, again, it's just, you're trying to narrow escape routes. So you're trying to put birds in front of the most amount of shots as you possibly can. So you put those two guys up 40 yards and then you still have the same three blockers. Yep. And then you just kind of, again, you have to have very strict rules, no shooting off to the sides. It's only up in the air. Yeah, and then you just kind of continue to push like that, and and that way anything that goes out too far ahead for the main line is going to be in the line of the of the uh, the flankers, and you're still just trying to push those birds toward the end. Yep. When you get to the end of a walk, that's when things can get kind of crazy. Stand there, like the last twenty yards, because I'm, I don't know how many times I've seen it where you walk out of a field and you got ten guys standing around in a circle with their guns broken open over their shoulder giving their buddy crap about the bird that they missed that got up at their feet, and then all of a sudden, like, four roosters get up behind you and they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Like, those last birds, they, like, let them dogs work that last 10, 15, 20 yards of the field, even 50 yards of the field. Yeah. Let them work it a lot because those birds will just kind of keep on zigging and zagging all the way through there until they finally get out behind you somehow, so. Yeah, most of what you described is, you know, pretty similar to what I experienced and what we did in South Dakota. It's cool to hear you kind of analyze it and break it down because – you know, we we did a lot of it on the fly, and Greg filled me in as I needed to. But to hear some of the theory and kind of the concepts behind it, we did one flanking walk. It wasn't as exaggerated of a flank, but we were working a really long piece of Milo, and we actually didn't have blockers. But we ended up not getting into birds in that one. Although Chet saw a couple of roosters on the ground, and we never flushed them, so it may have mm. been one of those things where you just you didn't put the birds in the air, right. and that's that's part of the game. Yeah, and. You know, we use that that technique a lot, uh, the flanking technique when we don't have enough people to have blockers. So sure. a lot of times, you know, we'll we'll hunt if there's four of us, say we'll hunt two guys and then we'll have two like say just twenty yards yep. out on the edge. It doesn't have to be super far. That's what we did. But yep. mm-hmm, and like when when you have limited numbers that that really does become uh, a pretty beneficial move yeah that and then late season when those birds are going out way ahead that's when you kind of have to have it that exaggerated yeah so i hate to always i hate to make you like pick a top or a, or or a best thing but like sure for somebody interested in pheasant hunting let's say they've never done it before what are what's kind of your top tips as far as and let's kind of narrow it to if I want to go find birds, what am I going to look for on the ground? Do I need, do I need a, a strip of thick cover? What do I, what do I have to have for an essential piece of pheasant cover? There's a couple things that are going to be there. Um, pheasants are very driven by egg. Um, they like wheat 
canola, corn. Uh, you know, that's why there's so many of them in South Dakota is because there's cornfields everywhere. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be the number one thing I'm going to look for. Now, most years, um, as somebody who's just going there, you're not necessarily going to be able to do this. But as uh, most years, it seems like, you know, you can definitely find a crop that they are liking more than another. I don't have sure, any idea why, sure. but it's like, okay, I'm finding 80% of my birds in wheat stubble, which is um, kind of what this year has been. I've been finding about 75 or 80% of my birds in wheat stubble more so than canola, which I don't understand why, but that's where they are. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that you're going to look for is water. Pheasants okay. like like thick cover, like I was mentioning, cattails. Um, they use that, that slough grass as nesting cover. Um, so even if that slough was... Uh, or is dry now, it probably wasn't in May and June, yep. right? So I'm looking for those pieces of thick cover because that's where the water was at, which is most likely where the pheasants are going to be at. And the biggest tip that I can give anybody who's just going out, I mean, like, I, I cannot stress this enough. Not all cover is created equal. When I'm looking at a cattail slough, there's a lot of different kinds of cattail sloughs, okay? There are the super tall, nasty, tangled over, laid over cattails that you can't get through. Don't hunt those. Uh, I mean, there may be some birds in there. But if you can't walk through it, and if the dogs can't get through it, then pheasants can't fly out of it. Yeah. So they're not going to be in there quite as quite as often as they will be in the the chest deep kind of clumps uh, of cattails that um, they're the ones that end up whacking you in the face and getting you covered yeah. in fuzz. Yeah. Those are going to be a lot more beneficial than the ones that are eight feet tall and you end up getting stuck in. Yeah. So uh, that is a a huge a huge tip. Um, <laughs> like. The other one that I, again, can't stress this enough is just slow down. If you're like, man, I just don't, there's no roosters in here. There's all kinds of hens. There's all kinds of hens. That's because you're walking too fast. You can think, and your natural birds. reaction might be speed up, cover more ground. You know, Don't do it. Yeah. Nope. Slow way down. You can't, you can't hunt slow enough. That's cool. My favorite hunt was similar to what you described. It was, it was basically a big, long creek bottom draw in between mm-hmm. some higher agriculture fields you know and and keep in mind the place that i was hunting is very very well it's not maximized for ag it's really maximized for for pheasants pheasants. yeah and and i really appreciated that about what greg has done but just a beautiful mostly dried up creek bottom had that slough grass in there had some cattails and we worked Mm -hmm. that whole thing and there were tons of birds in there it was a blast yeah for sure for sure all right, man. Well, before I let you go, you are, uh, as we joked about earlier, you're kind of at halftime uh, in your season, yeah. and you're getting ready for the next big adventure, or I should say adventures. Preview well, preview the next uh, yeah. segment of your season for us. So Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, it, it happened, uh, the moment where I actually got tired of shooting pheasants. So um, it happens every year. Usually it's not <laughs> until much later. But uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'd just seen like 70 pheasants go out ahead of us. And I had a couple in my bag and I was like, yep, not excited anymore. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, I, I hit my century club on all three birds. I got 100 huns, 100 pheasants and 100 sharp tails this year. So I'm, I'm good. Uh, so I had been planning on uh, taking a fairly long road trip. Um, working my way down towards Arizona. Uh, I've been, I mean, I've been going down to Arizona for uh, several years now, but I was planning on leaving right around Christmas. Um, I'm leaving tomorrow. <laughs> so, uh, now is what's going to happen. Uh, today I'm trying to get my house all, all kind of locked up for, for the winter. Up. 
Yeah, and uh, get some, um, you know, kind of get everything taken care of here, as well as I had a I had a table full of birds that I had to clean um, <laughs> from the last week. Yeah. I, I, I age all my birds in the garage, so I had uh, 12 pheasants, um, 9 huns, and uh, 8 sharp tails or something like that I cleaned this morning. Um, but, so now, the next step is uh, tomorrow uh, I'm driving down to Fort Pier National Grassland in South Dakota. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I have a buddy staying here, Logan. Uh, he was down there twice this year, and he said that there's incredible numbers of both sharptails and prairie chickens down there this year. Cool. Don't really care so much about sharptails, um, but we're going to go down and chase prairie chickens. Uh, so we're going to do that for, well, today's December 1st. We're going to do it um, for four or five days, I think. And then... Um, Logan has about the same uh, amount of responsibility as I do. Uh, he, he can basically work from his computer. Cool. So uh, he he takes he uh, he has a goal every year of spending a hundred nights in a tent, and uh, apparently he still has a few more to go. So we're going to work on that a little bit. Awesome. Um, so we're going to hit that. We're going to zip over to Michigan and uh, visit my buddies over there. We're going to do some uh, rough grouse hunting. Um, which, uh, usually that's about two days is plenty for me. (laughs) Are you going to be lower or upper? Uh, upper, lower. Um, yeah, we're going to be, uh, yeah. Um, uh, in fact, we're going to go over and visit, uh, Doug from soggy dog and, uh, hopefully get a chance to hunt with him a little bit. Um, so we're going to do that, uh, chase some steelhead and some salmon. I guess the rivers are starting to, starting to get some fish in them. Cool. And then from there, uh, going to be over there about a week. And then uh, Kansas. Uh, I'm gonna go chase bobwhites and prairie chickens in Kansas. Um, Oklahoma for bobwhites. Uh, Texas for quail and cranes. Uh, I got a guy down there who's gonna take me on a crane hunt, hopefully. Nice. And then uh, I think I'm skipping New Mexico because uh, you know who I'm just gonna drive across to get to Arizona, yeah. where my my final destination kind of is. It sounds like the desert birds down there are really good. I talked to John O'Dell the other day, and he said that it's the best year for gambles quail and uh, and scale quail that there's been in like 25 years. Uh, he said there's people going out and shooting limits of desert quail, which is 15 birds a person, which is nuts. Wow. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. And then it sounds like the Mern's quail aren't going to be uh, terribly good, but I'm still going to spend some days up in the mountain chasing chasing uh, Mern's quail. Yeah. And the final leg of the trip, it's not set in stone yet. But I think it's going to be Utah, Nevada for chucker. No way. So yeah, I'm gonna. I want to claim uh, the title as the fattest chucker hunter on earth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm hoping I don't die on a mountain someplace or uh, you know whatever. But uh, if uh, if if I still have any kind of legs left under me from after chasing Mern's quail and desert quail in Arizona, I think I'm going to zip up there for a couple days. Uh, knock the knock the old red legged devil off the list, and then uh, zip on back home sometime around Valentine's Day. I think yeah. so. I'm gonna be gone for like two and a half months. Well, buddy, if you're not in game shape by then, I don't know what you know. You're gonna be you'll be tuned up for it. I, I'm t- I, I'm too stubborn to quit, anyways. <laughs> so like, if, if you know, I, I don't know how many times I've done it when it's been a uh, Mern's quail or uh, sharp tails in the hills here or whatever. You'll be huffing and puffing and tired and dragging ass, and then all of a sudden you see a dog go on point, and yep. all of a sudden, like that adrenaline hits you, and you find your, you look back, and you're like 500 feet farther up a, up a hill than you were like 20 seconds ago, and you're like, oh, geez, apparently I'm not that tired. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a, uh, I'm going to end up breaking my, my record was 100, and I did 126 days of hunting last year, and I'm going to, I'm going to smash that this year. I think I've only taken seven days off since, since like, the, the first of September or something like that. So 
Yeah, it's been it's been a hell of a season, and uh, I've never taken a two and a half month road trip before, as I'm sure that most people can uh, can relate to, because I don't think anybody ever gets a chance yeah, to do this. That's quite a bit. So it's that's called a like, sabbatical in most people's lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to take a bird hunting sabbatical for the next several months. Uh, but it's you know it's kind of one of those things where like the stars aligned. I have a couple of really good employees right now, so I don't really have any responsibilities there. Yeah, um, got good vehicles under for them. I just bought a new pickup, so my Ford that I've been driving for the last four years is now going to be uh, my North Dakota bird hunting truck slash emergency mail route vehicle. So cool. I have a backup here for them as well. <laughs> and uh, so it's kind of one of the, like I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they're like, "You're going to be gone for how long?" I was like, two and a half months." Or like. Well, that's a long time. I'm like, yeah, but I may never have this kind of time again, right. ever. You, you never know. know. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, next year I may have employee problems or yeah. um, who knows what's going to be going on with COVID or, you know, whatever. So it's like, yeah. that. I got the time. I got the, you know, I got the resources and I got, I got uh, three relatively young, healthy dogs. So got the dog I'm gonna power. Go, <laughs> I'm going to go and see how long I can go before them or me give up. So <laughs> it's probably going to be me. Awesome, but, man. Yeah, it's well, going to be fun. You are a bird hunting SOB. That's why I called you up and wanted to have you on and talk about pheasants and all kinds of other stuff. I am looking forward to hearing about more of your adventures. Where can folks go to listen to it? Uh, the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast. It's on all the all the platforms, iTunes. Um, I think it's even on Spotify. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. You can just search it, and it'll pop up. I think there's 175 episodes or something like that on there. Yep. And then uh, anybody who does want to follow along, um, the Instagram has been uh, my, my go-to social media platform recently. Yep. I, uh, I got off Facebook um, for the most part. I still have a, a podcast page there. But um, Instagram at birds.booze.buds podcast. And uh, yeah, follow me there. Awesome, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck, and I'll look forward to keeping in touch with you and following along, and we'll we'll chat again soon, man. Well, I'll have time in the truck, so call me anytime, Larson. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. Yep. All right, later. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit ProjectUpland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great Upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show thanks again for listening everybody we'll catch you on the next episode of the project up podcast Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx.
Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.